0: Am I really the first speaker to speak outside? Is that... No, you're first external. Oh, sorry, external, yeah, external speaker. That's awesome. I like being the first to do stuff. That's, that's cool. If you will, please take your Bible and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And this morning, I'd like to talk about um, something that, uh, sort of this theological truth that has profoundly um, impacted my life and I hope is a blessing to you today and it's, it's the power of repentance. The power of repentance. When we think about repentance, we don't think of repentance being powerful, but it is. As we talk about the power of love and the power of service, we tell each, we tell ourselves we ought to love well, we ought to serve well, but by the same logic we also need to repent well. So this morning, I want to talk about repentance, and I want to do it from Psalm 51. So hear now the words of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. As was mentioned, I have four children. Um, They are a joy and a delight. And uh, frequently I love to take my children to the park. And um, several years ago, I took my children to the park, and I took a book along with me, because typically when I go to the park, I let them play, and then I read. That's the arrangement that we have. I don't disturb their playtime, and they don't disturb my reading time. And uh, it's worked well for my family. And so here we are on the playground, I'm just trying to read, and they're playing. And for about 30 to 45 minutes, a scene began to play out that plays out on most parks wherever you go. As the children are playing with each other, one of, the chi- one of the children typically hits the other child and there's a hue and cry. And of course, you know, let's say Johnny hits Sally and Sally's upset, so Sally runs to her mother and says, Hey, Johnny hits me. And so, you know, jo- Sally's mother goes to Johnny's mother and says, Hey, your child hit my child. And, you know, they look at each other and say, Okay, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. And this kept happening for about 30 to 45 minutes, constantly uh, this scene was being played out. One child would push another child down and a parent would come over and say, you need to say you're sorry, and of course, my children did the same thing. You know, they were running around and playing and my child tripped another child and remorseless. And then I go over there and I say, hey, please say you're sorry. And what I began to notice is that we were teaching our children to say sorry But we weren't teaching our children to repent. You see there's a difference between saying you're sorry and saying or and repenting. To say you're sorry simply means to acknowledge that you have done something wrong at best. At worst to say you're sorry you're just saying it to get out of trouble and to me that's what these children were doing they just did not want to get into trouble so they say they said that they were sorry. But we weren't teaching them how to repent. Because a re- repentance is a disposition of the heart. Repentance requires the power of the spirit. If I were to put it in another way, we weren't teaching them heart transformation. We were training them in behavioral modification. And you know what I've noticed? that. The cumulative effect of that is even as adults, as we get older, we learn how to say sorry really well, right? I mean, if you get older, you know, and you get famous, you get a publicist and you do something wrong and the publicist writes this wonderful apology letter and it's always to say you're sorry. But it doesn't do anything to your heart and by virtue of that, it doesn't really change your behavior because what I noticed on the playground is that the kids continue to do what they were doing before. They were continuously being mean to one another. They were continuously pushing each other down. But what they weren't doing is thinking about how their actions impacted someone else. And what they weren't doing is thinking about how they could change their hearts and their minds away from these sinful patterns to what a pattern of glorifying God. And I have to say to my shame, I wasn't doing that as well. I was not teaching my children repentance. I was just teaching them how to say I'm sorry. What I want us to do today briefly is I want us to look at Psalm 51 and kind of walk through it so we could see the power of true repentance and not simply learning how to say sorry well. And David illustrates that beautifully in this passage. So what I want to do is I want to look at the direction of repentance. I want to look at David's desire in repentance. And then I want to look at the deliverance that comes from repenting. First of all, the direction of repentance. If you look at verse number four, David makes this statement. He says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, if you know the background of Psalm 51, you'll know that this statement by David in verse number four is absolutely scandalous. Really, David? You only sinned against God? I could imagine Uriah's family saying something completely different. No, you sinned against us. And I imagine that um, Bathsheba's family would say something a little bit different. No, no David, you sinned against us. And I imagine his military leaders would say something a little bit different. Or even the people in his kingdom would say something a little bit different. But here David is saying something that's so audacious. He said, God, in spite of what I did, I realize that my sin ultimately is against you. And so he asked God for mercy. He asked God to act in accordance with his steadfast love. And he asked God to forgive him of his trespass. Why? Why is David doing this when it's obvious that he sinned against so many other people? Well the reason why David is doing this is because David realizes something that we don't often realize. And it's this, David understood that for something to be sinful or wrong, it has to be based on an objective moral standard. And that objective moral standard has to come from a transcendent God. You might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how did he know that? Well, the reason why he knew that is David was a king. It was his job to adjudicate matters in his kingdom. If someone came to him who had done something wrong, they couldn't claim some objective moral reality. They were standing in front of the king. And because they were standing in front of the king, they had had to be obedient to the, the, the dictives and the things that the king had laid down for them. And so David knew, David understood, listen, the reason why I sinned It's because I transgressed against the holy commands of another kingdom, and it's the kingdom of God. And so even though David had wronged all of these other people, he understood that ultimately, he had wronged God. Now, how does this work itself out practically in our lives? Well, for me, as I think about it, when I sin against my wife, where do you think the first place I should go? Well, the first place I should go is to God. Because it is God who has called me to love my, life, my wife well. And so when I sin against her, I go to God first to receive that forgiveness. And here's the principle. Horizontal forgiveness cannot happen until vertical forgiveness happens first. The priority in our life is for us to go to God first, not each other. I, there have been times in my life when I've sinned against other people and I, and I know for a fact that they will not forgive me. And you've experienced that as well. But what David is doing here is going before a holy God and saying, God, I, I need your forgiveness. I need, I need repentance before you, because before I go and apologize or before I go to repent to anybody else, I have to be in right standing with you. That's what David is doing here. So that's why we talk about the direction of repentance. We see that David goes to God first. But notice also something else. Not just the direction of repentance, but David's desire in repentance. And what is David's desire in repentance? It's written throughout the psalm, this psalm. Notice verse number 2. David says, "Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." Then David talks about in verse number seven, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be watered in snow. What is David's desire and repentance? So he could feel clean again. David feels dirty. His sin has left a stain on his soul that he's trying to get rid of. I'll never forget when my uh, daughter was born, Virginia specifically, I remember when she was born, she had all this gulk and disgusting stuff all over, and they took her from me, and, and you know, you get to walk with them, and they took her to this room, and they began to clean her. And I mean, they were scrubbing her, you know, they were scrubbing her head, they were scrubbing her body, and they were using a brush. I mean, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, don't you have a towel? Is, is this how things work? But they were actually using a brush to scrub her down. And I'm wondering to myself, like, oh, like you're going to hurt my child, but what were they doing? Well, they were trying to scrub her. They were trying to get her clean. And that's what David wants for, her, for himself. He wants to be clean. All of us here knows what it's like to not feel clean, to sin and have that sin weigh on your conscience. For about three or four years, um, several years ago, for about three or four years, I taught Greek to a bunch of 12 graders, and it's not as awful as it sounds, right? They were really, really interested in learning Greek. In fact, from 10th grade to 12th grade, I taught them the elementary principles of Greek, and we went through, and it was absolutely amazing. And one of my favorite things to do was to give them word studies. And one of the Greek words I would give them is the Greek word elasmos. And, and they would often come back, and we would have these robust discussions about what this Greek word elasmos meant. And what it meant, um, and, and they came back to me and they told me that what it meant was propitiation. And that's the way it's translated in the Bible. If you go to First John chapter 2, where it says, he is the propitiation for our sins. The Greek word there is the word elasmos, And they said, oh, Pastor Dennis, this is awesome. It means propitiation. It means that before God, uh, Christ came and died for me. And now I'm reconciled to God. And and his righteousness was imputed to me. And and my sin was imputed to him. And, and, man, they were so excited that there was a theological concept attached to what was going on in their hearts. And I said, man, that's great. But there's another aspect to this as well. And it's the understanding of expiation. And expiation is different from propiation because expiation talks about the removal of sin and guilt. And I promise you, every year, as I had that conversation with them, there would be a young man or a young woman who would start to cry. And the reason why they started to cry, I later found out, was because no one had ever told them they could be clean again. There were some of them that had been abused sexually. There were some of them that had done drugs. There were some of them that had done awful things and had awful things done to them. And, and whereas they understood that God forgave them, they understood they were on their way to heaven. The one thing that they didn't understand is that when Christ saved them, that he also cleansed them. And in this moment in which truth was being revealed to them, they, they came to an understanding that, hey, wow, I could be clean again. And by the way, isn't, isn't that what happened to David? Think with me for a second. From the time frame that David committed his sin with Bathsheba to when Nathan came to him and said, thou art the man, there was a period of one year. And for an entire year or so, David would have people come to him and ask him to deal with their matters, right? To decide between them or to render punishment of some sort. And he saw all these people coming to him and getting punished and that gave a sense of release and freedom from the sin that the sin was dealt with. And for an entire year, he saw people getting clean and he saw people being freed from their sin. But he, him, he wasn't clean. And the most freeing thing in the world to David was to have Nathan come to him and say, Thou art the man. Because for the first time in a year, David was ready to feel clean again. The weight of that sin was so much upon him that David said, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And he wrote a psalm commemorating that. Finally, I'm clean again. This is my desire before you. Notice also, not just that David's desire is to be clean again, but why is it that David desired to be clean again? What what does cleansing do for you and I? Well, this deliverance leads to restoration. And that's what comes from repentance. The beauty of repentance, when you and I truly repent and ask the Lord to cleanse us from our our sin, and we deal with the sin that's in our heart and our mind, and we... Foster that, uh, that attitude in our hearts and minds. What happens as a result of that? Well, we begin to feel clean. And what happens when you begin to feel clean again? David outlines that at, toward the end of the passage. And notice this. David says in verse number 7, Purge me from hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Why? David says in verse number 8, Let me hear joy and gladness again. Why does David want to feel clean again? So he can get his joy back. David's life was completely joyous because of sin, because of the stain of sin, because he had to carry the sin around. David says, Look, I am completely joyless. Now, David could have been happy, but he didn't have joy. And what's the difference between happiness and joy? Well, happiness is just built on external stimuli. If things are going good around you, you feel happy. But joy is a a distinct disposition of the heart that's settled upon Christ. That regardless of the situation that's going on around you, you still have this settled disposition toward loving and trusting in Christ. And David says, that's completely gone. I've lost my joy. And here's the thing about joy. You cannot fake it. Either you have it or you don't. And here's another reality. Nothing kills your joy like sin. You ever wonder why so many people around you are unhappy? In part, the reason why so many of us are unhappy is because we haven't learned the blessed reality of repentance and the desire to be clean in everything we say and everything we do. But not just that. Notice with me in verse number 11, David says, "'Cast me not away from your presence, nor take your Holy Spirit from me.'" What's David saying here? David is saying, God, I miss being close to you. I miss being in relationship with you. Why? Because sin separates us from God. It dulls our awareness for who God is. And David is saying, God, I want that back. I have no joy in worship because I'm carrying the sin. Notice the third thing that David mentions. It's in verse 13. He says, Once once I'm clean, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. What's David saying there? Well, David is saying, look, God, as soon as I get clean, now I can tell people about you. Now I can actually share the good news that you've done for me. Now I can teach people your word. It's very difficult for you to teach people God's word if you're living in sin. And you're not repenting before God. I love this one. In verse number 14 and 15, David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. What's David saying here in verse number 15? Then my mouth will declare your praise. David is saying, God, Because I I didn't repent and because I was distant from you, I couldn't do the very thing that I love to do, which is sing. Isn't it the case that when you're in sin and you're not repenting before the Lord, the very things that you enjoy become joyless? And more so than that, David is saying, I can't even perform the very thing that I love to do, which is play music and sing. And such is the case with us. That when we are separated from God, when we are not repenting before the Lord, we cannot do the things that we love to do. And notice what David says lastly, another fruit that comes from repentance. David says in verse 18 and 19, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, on whole burnt offerings, and bowls will be um, offered on your altar. What's David trying to say here toward the end? David is trying to say this, God, I know that simply sacrifices before you, burnt offering before you, is not enough. Because in verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is saying the true fruit of repentance comes as a result of a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. And here to me is the reality that David ultimately is pointing to. David is saying, look, the very one that did not need to repent, Christ, died to give us the ability to repent. David is saying that it's not going to be um, sacrifices, it's not going to be the duty or man-made religion. It's going to be faith and trust in Christ, ultimately, that's going to give us the power to repent rightly before the Lord. And so, what is David calling us to do? Well, David is calling us to a relationship with Christ that leads to sacrifice and brokenness before the Lord that leads to a contrite heart before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed, according to your good pleasure, we are reminded that you have called us to exercise repentance, not just to say we're sorry, not to live a life of sorry, but to actually live a life of repentance. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's by Christ Himself that we could participate in that. May that be said of us, and may we pursue that lifestyle. In Jesus' name, amen.